and we'll read a handful of verses today as we look at verses 1 uh, through to 18. So uh, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you we can uh, come today just as the people would have done this 2,000 years ago and just as countless millions, billions of people have done this down through the ages, Lord. Today we are doing what all followers and believers of Jesus do, and that is to sit at his feet and to hear his teaching uh, through your inspired words. So today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work through me. You, you alone know how weak I am and how uh, challenged I am this week in putting together this sermon. So I just pray now and ask for your strength and help as, uh, as we just begin to open up these first uh, verses of John and begin to introduce ourselves to the life of uh, Jesus Christ as seen and recorded by John, the Apostle, and inspired by you, Holy Spirit. We ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I think as we start this series in John, it would be really helpful if we asked ourselves a few questions to try and get some more uh, details around this book that would help us give us a deeper understanding uh, of what the Holy Spirit has inspired here for us to read today and to uh, see us uh, grow in the knowledge of Christ. And some of these questions will be questions like, well, who is John? Who is this guy? Who is this book that's written um, by John? John, we know from Scripture, was a fisherman. We've got a couple of guys who do a bit of fishing in here. It's quite a good pastime. You get on TV, you'll see lots of shows about fishing there at the moment. John was a fisherman. He, along with his brother James, in conjunction with their father Zebedee, were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. That was their livelihood. That was their trade. They went out there and caught fish and sold them in the marketplace or sold them wherever. And uh, that's how they earned a living. John was really no standout character. Uh, other than the Bible calls him and his brother, James, the sons of thunder. There's a good name for a couple of people, isn't it? Sort of, you know, sort of, what sort of image is that bringing up in our mind? Well, um, it probably indicates they were very hot-headed men. Probably men who were very strong and very um, sort of uh, perhaps stubborn and very quick to sort of use quite a few cursing words if those fish weren't quite getting in the nets at times. Or if they got splashed inadvertently by fish when they weren't ready to be splashed, probably uh, gave that fish a bit of a burst. Sons of Thunder. So no real standout character. Uh, there's actually one instance recorded of them in the Bible where they're actually with Jesus and they're travelling through uh, or coming past a Samaritan village and a bunch of young kids come out there and sort of harass them a little bit, just call them a few names and whatever. So James and John turn to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how about we just call some fire down from heaven and teach these boys a lesson? It's probably giving us a bit of indication here, just the sort of the temperament here of, of James and John. They were fairly potentially hot-headed men. John is one of the original disciples uh, called by Jesus to join him right back at the beginning. And then John goes on to spend three years being taught and trained by Jesus to carry on the work and ministry 
of Christ after Jesus has left the earth and returned uh, back to glory. John's known as one of the original apostles, one of the capital A apostles. When we say capital A apostles, they're the ones who've actually seen the risen Christ and heard from him and been taught by him. So when you talk about apostles, there's only those ones in the Bible we talk about. They're the capital A apostles. Uh, John's also later on to be called the pillar of the church. I think when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he sort of presents some, um, some thoughts and some uh, ideas to uh, the leading elders of the church. And it was said they were the pillars of the church. And John's actually called here one of the pillars of the church. So one of the founding members here of actually keeping the church strong, keeping it focused on Christ. He's also known as the Apostle of Love. He writes uh, some other books towards the end of the New Testament and he's known there as the Apostle of Love as he talks about that. It doesn't appear that John is a highly educated person. That's no slant on fishermen because there's some really well-educated guys here are fishermen, um, but he's not appearing as a highly educated person. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin at one point because they're preaching the gospel and they're told not to. And as the Sanhedrin sort of confer amongst themselves, they're saying, these guys are really untrained men. How have they got such knowledge about the scriptures? So it's actually given us an indication that he wasn't like a university graduate degree person. He was the fairly plain sort of a tradie, you might call him in today's language. I might have finished nine at school and just gone off and said, I'll just go and be a fisherman. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But marvellously, the Holy Spirit takes the untrained John and chooses to use him despite all this lack of training and and, uh, all this other, which we might think are so-called good things in life, you need to be able to write a book. The Holy Spirit takes that and inspires John to record five books of the Bible. He writes three letters. He writes this uh, gospel account of the life of Jesus Christ. And also, uh, he's believed to be um, the one who's authored the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. So that's a picture there of John. When was the book written? As with all books of the Bible, it's really hard to be precise with the date. You know, and it really probably doesn't matter whether it was written in January or July or September. It doesn't really make any difference. And what day of the week John might have put the last you know, stroke of ink on the, on the parchment doesn't make any difference either. But having said that, though, um, scholars who have gone through to sort of all types of layers of thinking about this think the book was written around AD 85. AD 85, and it's probably interesting then for this reason as we think about that. The other gospel accounts, the other accounts of the life of Jesus Christ through the gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are all written fairly close together. Yeah, there could be possibly five years or so between them, maybe ten years, but no more than that. And, uh, and they're all written about 30 or 40 years earlier than John's gospel. So John's sort of taken this perspective 50 years after Jesus has risen from the grave and 30 or 40 years after these other gospel accounts have been written and John's been um, inspired or felt moved to actually write a gospel account. So again, we can thank the Holy Spirit there inspiring John to do that to uh, deepen our richness and understanding of who Christ is through the eyes of John. It's, it's sort of a different gospel to the rest. It's sort of written from a different vantage point. Uh, John's the longest living of the original disciples of Jesus. He possibly lived uh, more than 60 years. Is that going in and out? Okay, I might swap over this other anyway. Is that back on? Right. 
John's the longest living of the uh, original disciples of Jesus. Uh, he possibly lived more than 60 years after Jesus had risen from the grave, so a long, long, long time after. Um, he's the only one, according to, to tradition, that wasn't martyred for their faith. Uh, John lived to around about maybe AD 95, AD 100 thereabouts, and eventually was uh, exiled to the, to the island of Patmos, and that's where we um, get the, the book of Revelation from, where he received a revelation of Jesus Christ there as well. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that down too. So uh, there's something unique here about John. Uh, and the life that God had given him and the actual um, strength and support he'd given to the church. Why is John written? Why is it written? Some books of the Bible are written to answer questions that other believers may have. We call them sort of situational letters. They're actually dealing with a situation that has taken place in the church and the church is looking for help. What, what do we do in this situation? What do we do in this circumstance? You know, they would write to the apostles this, and the apostles would write back, with, this is what we would do. This is the counsel we would give. Other books in the Bible are collections of history and poems. And uh, much of the Bible, there was narrative. And when we say narrative, we're looking at the telling of a story of circumstances, just relaying the story of how something happened. That's like narrative scripture. And that's what uh, the book of John is. It's a narrative. It's the story of the life of Jesus Christ uh, as inspired by the Holy Spirit through the eyes of John as he records that down. But the book also tells us why it's written. John's very good like this. Towards the end of the book, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, he actually says, this is why I've written this book. And we'll bring that up for you now. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, so this is why he's writing, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It becomes a really key phrase there through the book of John, this word belief, believing in Jesus Christ. So John is very much an evangelistic book. He's, in, he's writing this so that people will believe in Jesus Christ. And in his name, they will have uh, life, eternal life. John's writing to tell us about Jesus. He wants us to believe in Jesus so that we would receive the life that Jesus has to offer in his name. John wants us, he wants us to believe in Jesus. He wants us to accept who Jesus is and to completely entrust ourselves to him as our Lord and Saviour. This is what John is urging for us today, even now, 2,000 years later, as we read this very same book that was read 2,000 years ago and all the way through history. It's designed here for us. Its purpose here for us is to believe, to accept the facts and the truths about who Jesus is and exactly what he came for. This is John's purpose in writing this book and this is exactly why the Holy Spirit has inspired this book so that we would believe and entrust ourselves to him. He wants us to believe. Now, can I say this is the biggest challenge you or I will face in our life, to believe. It really is the biggest challenge we'll face. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, what we believe about Jesus affects our lives for eternity. If we choose to reject Christ, if we choose not to believe in, if we choose not to entrust ourselves to him or accept who he is, if we choose not to believe in him, we will be under God's right wrath for eternity. For eternity, if we reject the gospel, if we reject who Jesus is. As Christians, though, believing in Jesus, our biggest challenge is to keep believing in him. To keep believing in him. 
We will face all manner of hurdles and trials and problems of this life that will be very, very difficult to deal with. But that they are not our biggest problems. Our biggest problem is continuing on in faith and trust and belief in who Jesus is. That is the biggest difficulty that we will all face. You may not know this, but as I talk about it, it may perhaps come to light a bit more, but there's, there's a wrestling or there's a fight within us that's happening on every day within every Christian and that wrestle or that fight is to keep believing. That is the biggest fight we are all engaged in, to keep believing in who Jesus is and entrusting ourselves to him and living the life he's called us to live. It's a wrestle, it's a fight. Not so much a physical wrestle or a physical fight, but it's happening up here. It's happening in our minds. We are wrestling and fighting to believe. Difficult circumstances in life come our way and they really easily take the wind right out of our sails. Health scare, financial problem, relationship breakdown, family breakdown. There's any number of ways these things can come into our lives. And these troubles come and they can easily begin to just blow us over and take the wind right out of our sails. And our biggest battle when that's happening is to keep believing in Jesus despite what these circumstances are telling us. Because when these circumstances come, they begin to overwhelm. And we begin to think things like this. Jesus, you don't really care about me. Jesus, I don't think you're really interested in my life. Jesus, I keep praying, but I don't think you're answering my prayers. Jesus, why keep following you? I just seem to go from trouble to trouble to trouble. These are real thoughts that come into our minds. They're doubts. Jesus, the world is going in this direction. It's going from good time to good time, from party to party. And my life seems so boring compared to the rest of this world. Is it really worth following you? These are real things that come in our minds. This is the fight to believe. This is the battle. This is the wrestle that takes place in our minds. We are fighting to believe. So John writes to us to believe. To believe who Jesus is. To equip us for this, for this wrestle, to equip us for this fight and this battle that goes on and sometimes rages within our minds. So in exchange, we want to go through this book so that we will believe and so that we will deepen in this belief. We want to get all we can about Jesus into our minds and allow the Holy Spirit to bring that alive in our hearts so that our belief will be strengthened and it will grow. So today we want to see this portrait that John's going to open up for us through this uh, book that he's written. And we also want to see the truths that Jesus taught that John's recorded for us today as well. So that will help our belief and grow our faith and grow our trust when these situations and circumstances come our way and attempt to take uh, our faith or erode our faith and weaken our faith. So what we have to see here in this, in this opening section here is that Jesus is absolutely unique absolutely unique he's one of a kind and John will show us that he will show us that Jesus is the central figure that all of history will revolve around it's all centered around Christ so we're going to look at three unique things here just to open up this uh, early section of uh, of John and um, begin to prepare ourselves for the rest of this book as we go through it first thing we want to see there is Jesus the living word is God Jesus, the living word, is God. John starts this gospel with some really huge statements about who Jesus is. There's no sort of easing into it for John. He doesn't sort of give us sort of a whole heap of um, you know, other minor details. He sort of comes out of the, out of the, uh, the trenches and he comes out sort of 
wielding some big statements, some big things about uh, who he is. And John tells us there in verse 1 and 2, he says this, that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When you see that word, word there, this is referring to Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. So right here we have this emphatic statement about Jesus. The word or Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Now we've probably seen plenty of people who thought they were some sort of a God by the way they acted. Maybe Usain Bolt might have thoughts going through his mind when he's invincible, like at the height of his powers, he might feel godlike. And some people can be filled up with pride and they can feel like they are invincible at times and they can think like or feel like they are godlike only until a very large disaster comes along in their life and they very quickly realise how weak they are and how quickly they are not God at all. But Jesus is God. Jesus, the living word, is God. And here's something really, really unique here that we have to think about Jesus and to try and help us clarify something about him. Jesus is God, but he hasn't always existed as such. Jesus is God, but he hasn't always existed as such. Now, before you pick up your stones and begin to stone me for heresy here, let me explain what I mean when I say that. The word here... The word refers here to the Son of God. John is referring to the word as the Son of God. He, the Son of God, has always existed. Always existed. No beginning, no end with the Son of God. Part of the the Trinity or the triune God that we serve and we love. Always existed. Now John, though, has a grasp by first-hand account and by faith that the Son of God has always existed, but also that the Son of God is now Jesus of Nazareth. So to clarify that here, this is what's taken place. At a time determined by God, the Son of God who's always existed has filled the body of a human baby and been implanted into the womb of Mary, the wife of Joseph. The living word, the Son of God, has become flesh and blood, taking on a human body. And we see that in verse 14, and the word became flesh. So there's actually a transition here which is really significant and really unique. The Son of God has always existed, has now changed the way he exists. He now exists in a human body. And that started back 2,000 years ago. The real historical living today Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Unique, unique, never to be repeated again. So the Son of God, fully God in every way, absolutely God in every possible way we can think of, has forever changed his existence at this point in time of human history. The Son of God now will forever be in the form of a human being, a man. So for 2,000 years, this is the way Jesus has been. The Son of God has been in the body of a man. Prior to this, the Son of God has always existed, always existed, but not, not as a human being. So you and I will see this as we go through this book of John, that Jesus, the Son of God, displays his humanity as the God-man. Jesus, who is God, will be tired. Jesus, who is God, will be hungry. Jesus, who is God, will be thirsty. It will show human sort of um, limitations, uh, incapacities. As God, God is never tired. God is never thirsty. God is never hungry. But the God-man... 
is tired, is thirsty, is hungry. And at the same time as we see his, I guess, his humanity come through, we will also see the deity that is still with Christ in this form, that he will, through the um, indwelling of the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit in the person Jesus, God will calm storms, raise the dead and walk on the water and do countless other miracles. This is unique, absolutely unique here that John is opening up with us right at the start of this book. This will then now lead us into the second unique aspect of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus, the living word, has created all things, all things. Everything we see and know about and everything we don't see or don't know about, Jesus has created all things. The Son of God has created all things. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the Son of God, is uniquely the creator of all the complexity of this incredible world that we see around about us. He is the sovereign creator. When we see these incredible elements of, the, of, a, of a mountain ecosystem and how all the weather patterns sort of cycle themselves around the, the formation of mountains and the way the clouds move off and bounce back and drop their rain and go back out to the ocean and the way they do all these things, we need to stand back and say, Jesus, you have done this. The Son of God, you have created all this. You've put this all together. This is your work. This is you who is now dwelling with mankind. When we see how finely balanced this universe is with all its rotational orbits of planets revolving around the sun and the way stars are sort of doing the thing out in this universe and how we're still now finding sort of distant galaxies further and further out as man builds more and more larger telescopes and we see how vastly huge this universe is and we see how this earth is like one grain of sand in comparison to all the beaches of the world. Earth is so tiny it's nearly infinitesimally small compared to the rest of this universe and we sit back and think of this vast universe, this creation of all that, and we say, Jesus, you have done that. The Son of God has created all this. This is unique. This is absolutely unique. And what's more, this sovereign creator, as we said before, has come to dwell amongst us, dwell with us. At the end of verse, uh, part with verse 14, it says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this same creator now voluntarily chooses to completely identify with us his creation. He comes to, as it were, live with us, be with us, reside with us. This is unique, absolutely unique. Think about all the false religions and the false cults that are around our world today. If any of them have some sort of picture of a deity, it's always remote and distant and far away. That God would never consider coming to dwell with mere mortals. Normally their God is angry and they're trying to appease their God. But this is not the true God, the only God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. He's not only changed his existence to a human being and changed it forever that way to identify with us, he now chooses to come and abide with us, to dwell with us and to live with his creation, to experience all that we will experience. Jesus has come to this life to go through life just as we go through it. So he can see, so, so that we can see him who is just like us. Jesus has come to totally identify with us, to be with us. This is incredibly unique that the Son of God would do this. 
This leads us to the third aspect here, or the third unique aspect that John begins to bring out to us here, just as we begin this introduction, this opening here to the book of John. And it says here that Jesus comes to bring uh, grace and truth. Not only has he come to dwell with us. So sorry, we need to ask ourselves, why has Jesus, the Son of God, come to dwell with us? And we will go through this book of John, we'll see this, and we'll see it right now that he's come to bring grace and truth to us. This is the reason why he's come to dwell with us. John one seventeen says here, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus has come to bring. He's come to bring grace and he's come to bring truth. He's come to, as a word, bring the favour of God to our lives. This undeserved, unearned favour that God grants to those to whom he chooses is the grace that Jesus now brings. This is the generosity of a sovereign creator, of a unique sovereign creator who looks down in pity upon his own creation. He sees their desperate state and knows they cannot save themselves. They have bound themselves up in all sorts of manner of ways of sinfulness and the mess that now they've created for themselves. He comes down in his unmerited favour, his unearned favour, and brings grace into their lives to bring them. This is what this unique Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, now brings. He brings grace, and ultimately we will see this grace displayed in the cross at the end of his life, when he lays his life down on the cross for our sin. At the same time as this, though, the Jews, in grasping this grace, they were very, very well versed in the law of Moses of their day. That's where they lived. They lived in the law of Moses. They knew that teaching really, really well. They had rabbis and teachers who were constantly drilling that into them week after week. Small children were really well taught in that. But that law of Moses was helpless to save them. It couldn't save them. It was helpless. But the law was really good or helpful to show them their sinfulness, but could not provide any salvation at all from a holy God. But Jesus comes onto the scene, this unique Son of God, and he begins to reveal God's immeasurable grace that could save them and could bring them back into a right relationship with God. Jesus, in the sovereign purpose of God and the perfect time of God, brings this saving grace to, as it were, restore them. And this is the best news that anybody can possibly hear is the salvation that God brings through his son Jesus and the grace that he has to bring with him. The best news that any man, woman or child could ever possibly hear is this grace from this unique son of God, this Christ that has come. And we've got to think about here what's taken place at this particular time, particularly back then. What we have between the Old Testament and the New Testament is uh, 400 years of time period between the book of Malachi and, uh, and the start of the New Testament. And really what it actually is, it's about 400 years of silence from God. God hasn't spoken through the prophets. God hasn't sort of said a word for those 400 long years, not a word from God. That would be pretty demoralizing, I think, in many ways. But in the meantime, their Jewish teachers were continually bringing the law of Moses to them week after week. But what had happened with these Jewish teachers... And uh, the priests of that time, they had totally distorted this law. They had totally corrupted this law and they began to make it a money-making business for themselves to actually line their own pockets. But Jesus arrives not only to bring grace but also the truth of God, to bring this law right back into its right context and its right perspective, 
Jesus brings this truth, this unique Son of God, to now begin to liberate and set people free from the slavery of sin. He will speak the truth like no other. It will be a light. It will be like a floodlight, as it were, breaking into the darkness and all of a sudden shedding the truth into their lives and setting them free from all the bondages, from what they had come up against in their previous uh, distortion of what the priests and the rabbis had done at that time. And that's the uniqueness here of the Son of God. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ comes through him. And that is unique, totally unique. Now, John also shows us here in this introduction that despite this uniqueness of Jesus, unique that Jesus is God, unique that Jesus is our creator who came to dwell with us and identify with us forever, unique that Jesus has come to bring grace and truth, despite all of this, people still refuse to believe in him. People would not accept him for who he is. Verses 10 11 of the first chapter, he says this, He was in the world, this is Jesus, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Despite all of this uniqueness of Christ, they refused to accept who he was and refused to believe in who he was. He did incredible demonstrations of miraculous powers that only God could do, but they still refused to listen and believe who he is. And today, it's still happening. Today, it's still happening. Not so much as the demonstration of miraculous powers, although that does take place uh, in various parts around the world. But uh, today, people still refuse to believe who Jesus is. They refuse to accept who he is. Now, this breaks my heart, and I know it breaks the hearts of many of you sitting here today, because we all can think of somebody within our own family, or somebody very close to us, who at this point in time is refusing to believe who Jesus is, or is refusing to accept who Christ is and what he's done. We present Jesus to people and they continually uh, reject. They continually seem to, as it were, close their mind to it. And we painfully sit there and watch as they refuse to accept him for who he is and what he says. Now, praise God, that story isn't over for us. Praise God that we can continue to keep praying and asking that God would miraculously open their eyes up just like he's opened our eyes up. And that's one of the things we'll be praying for this afternoon is, is for unsaved loved ones in our church, in our families. His grace is mighty to save. So Jesus is unique, absolutely, totally unique. Usain Bolt may be in town and he may be totally unique in his running ability. He's a very gifted man, a great entertainer, and he's very, very fast. All of those gifts come from Jesus. Usain Bolt cannot even lift a toe, let alone a foot, let alone a leg, unless Jesus gives him the ability to do that. He is fast, but someone in time to come will actually be faster than Usain Bolt. But there is only one God-man, Jesus Christ. He is unique. He is standalone. There will only be ever one God-man, Jesus Christ. There will be not another one. As I was thinking about closing this here today, I I come across this great illustration just to give a a small picture or a small snapshot here of of what it is to uh, to leave the realms of glory and to come and to dwell in this uh, broken, challenged world. There was a king who dwells and lives in the most glorious of circumstances. His throne is unchallenged and he has no need of anything. His every wish and desire is catered for in an instant. He lives in comfort and in peace with not a hint of rebellion within his kingdom. His servants joyfully wait on his every command and they are in awe of of all his wisdom and all of his knowledge. This king enjoys a fulfilled and trouble-free life. He knows nothing but protection and a lifestyle 
that is uh, of ease. One day this king decides to go outside his walls and he sees a sight that he's never seen before. He sees beggars and he sees broken people battling to survive. He sees people fighting and rebellion like never before. He sees poverty and pain in the deepest ways imaginable. He's never experienced this before. The king, this king, is absolutely struck by these images of miserable humanity. This king cannot get these images out of his mind. As he sleeps each night, he cannot get these scenes of this broken, miserable humanity fighting and rebelling against each other out there. Night and day, he keeps thinking about these poor people. So one day, this king leaves the palace and decides to take up residence in the slums of humanity to try and understand where these people are coming from. And when he's there, for the very first time, he's abused. He's despised. No one recognises him as the king. He's hungry and he's uncomfortable. He's avoided. He's been cast away from other people. He's now totally vulnerable to the worst of humanity that can throw at him. He now knows what it is like to be people identify with those broken and downcast. He chose that to identify with his people. Only a really faint picture there, just a faint, faint picture of what Jesus, the Son of God, chose to do for us. To leave the realms of glory, to leave this place of peace, joy, this place of abundance, this place of no lack whatsoever, to come and to dwell with us, to bring grace and truth, and ultimately to come and to save us. This is the Jesus that John writes about today in this book of John. This is the Jesus that we are going to discover as we work through this book of John. And today I could ask probably these simple, simple questions as we close. Is this the Jesus that we know? Some of these unique aspects. Or is the Jesus I know a much smaller Jesus that just sort of works only in my sort of limited dimensions? Are we going to listen and believe in him today, this Jesus we begin to see introduced to us in this book of John? Will this Jesus through John's gospel take a loving hold of our lives and that we will willingly and joyfully call him our Lord and surrender our lives to him? Will we allow this uniqueness of Jesus with his grace and truth to be reflected out through our lives? That's my prayer for us as we go through this book of John, that we will see Jesus in a whole new and a deeper dimension. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you today as we just uh, make this introduction to the book of John and we see this uniqueness of the Son of God forever changing his existence, becoming now a human being and forever identifying with us in a human body. God, we look forward to that day to meeting Jesus. But at this point in time, we meet him through the scriptures. So today I pray, Holy Spirit, as we begin to embark on this journey uh, through the book of John, that you will grow a whole new dimension of Christ in our hearts and our lives. This dimension will be a dimension of joy. This dimension will be a dimension where we grow in the richness of who he is and in a sense we can begin to let him live in a more uh, observable way out through our lives. And God, through this that we will be as we're agents of reconciliation, that we will have the aroma of Christ with us wherever we go. So even as we think of those who may break our hearts now, Lord, loved ones in our families who are not saved, that they would see a a deeper Jesus living out through us as we grow through the book of John. Help us today that, Lord, I pray, and I commit that to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask John now to come up and just to lead us around the table as we do that. So if I could get um, Joe and Nate, if you guys could do the... uh, Elements, that would be good, thanks.
Good morning. 6.30 yesterday morning, the court was awoken by the sound of a car towing a trailer up, up the court. Arriving at Rafty Road there, I've given away a fishing secret. Um, the boat goes on the water and out I go. Not a bird is chirping, the water is still. And it was great. Sun hadn't risen and I was eager and excited to go down to my favourite fishing hole in order to catch some fish. And things were going well. Three three rods in the water. Um, just prior to what I'm about to say, um, a nice cod decided to buckle my rod over and by the time I had time to grab it, um, it had dove me under some snags and was still there but wouldn't come out. And as Paul know, that can be very frustrating because not only do you lose a fish, but you lose your line as well. And that's just what happened. Uh, so everything was going well. A few cod came up and I got them and, and let them go. Um, and it was quite tranquil. In fact, I was really enjoying being there, just being on the beautiful river, everything that God had provided when Todd Hall decides to show up in the form of an SMS. And he reminds me um, about communion and, and what he's speaking on, the uniqueness of Jesus. And I was thinking, the uniqueness of Jesus. So here I was, boat in the water, three lines out, and my thoughts of fishing had suddenly gone. And now rattling around in my brain is the uniqueness of Jesus. And, and I started to think about fishing as well. And um, I thought about different things like baits and hooks and various things. And, and for those who don't know... Um, if you want to catch carp in the river, you use bread. If you want to catch a cod, you can use a body grab, a yabby, yabby. you can use worms, but you won't catch cod on bread. It's, they just don't like it. Um, and if you want to catch perch, you can go to a worm, but they won't necessarily take cheese, but a cod will take cheese. And so it's interesting that if you want to do exactly what you if you want to catch a certain species, then you've got to have the right thing to, to make it work. So I started thinking a bit about that. Then I started thinking about a hook. And in all my fishing experience, I've never had one occasion where a bait, where it's worm or whatever, has willingly put themselves on there. Not one time. I've always had to pick it up, slimy or otherwise, and feed it on the hook and watch it say, I don't want to be there. Not with words, but with actions. They just don't want to be there. The other thing is that for us people, we don't want to come anywhere near this either. Anyone who's ever been fishing will know that some of the most painful experiences are when you get one of these things in your finger, arm or other places. And it's very painful. 
So other than putting a bait on there and, and going near it to remove the hook out of the fish's mouth, we don't want anything to do with it. The other thing I thought about is that why do I have to keep going to the bait shop and supply bait? Every time I go fishing, I have to go and buy new bait. It just doesn't last. Twelve bucks. It's getting dearer, Paul. The uniqueness of Jesus. Well, how can we, how can we get all that and reflect on Jesus? Well, here it is. First of all, when everyone else has avoided it, Jesus put himself on the hook and he did it willingly, knowing that he would sacrifice himself by doing so. And he was cast out from everything he had known and he willingly did it. And in that, his one act meant there was one sacrifice and only once was needed. Don't have to continually top up like going to the bait store and getting another tab. No, Jesus is unique. Because when he did that, when he willingly put himself on the hook for you and me, he did it once and he did it once for all. And the invitation is this. Guys, let's go fishing. Fishing from a a different perspective. Fishing by accepting what Jesus has done for us and be thankful. And what does he ask? The Son of God could ask anything of us. Could say, Todd, I want you to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I want you to keep reading my word from 5 through to 1. That'd be cool. But what does he ask? Remember me, is what he asks. I love that Todd explained through John. It was, it was wonderful to, to recount all those things that John spoke about. Jesus, the Son, foundation of the world. So today, let's... Have I got a... Ah, oh, cool. We'll pray... And we will eat and we will drink together in thankfulness that Jesus willingly put himself there for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, we want to say thank you. And even that's not enough. We thank you that you not only willingly but intentionally laid your life down from minute one. We thank you that you you set up sacrifice in such a way that the old would be fulfilled by the new in yourself. That you, the Son of God, would lay the life down in order to fix what was broken. And we thank you, Father God, that when we look at our lives in all its entirety, open and laid bare, that a lot of that is broken. We thank you, Father, that 
you came to do away with that. We thank you that we have um, come to you and you have received all our ugliness and brokenness. You've loved us as we are. We thank you that you forgive us our sins and and uh, we choose this day to remember you. So Father, thank you that we can take, eat and drink and remember what you've done and celebrate in all you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Thanks for um, pulling it together for us. Guys, I'm very happy to catch up with anybody that you'd like some prayer or um, uh, just to see me about anything. Uh, love to do that. Please don't forget to um, collect your kids from across over there at near the tennis courts. And uh, don't forget our prayer meeting tonight at five o'clock here in this building. We'd love to see as many of you could come. That would be great. And your care cards too, please. Um, good time now to fill them out and get them back to us. Please join us for, uh, for coffee and uh, a bite to eat as well. Thank you.